So if you're interested in just knowing more about what BSF is, Bible Study Fellowship, then come to the meeting. It's just an informational meeting, so there's no obligation to that. You're just finding out what it is, what kind of commitment it would require, all of that, to determine whether or not uh, that's something you want to do. So this Tuesday, 7 o'clock for that. Wednesday, nothing going on here. Our Wednesday program is uh, finished for the summer. We'll start back up again in the fall. This coming Saturday is the open house, graduation open house for uh, Elizabeth Pruitt. That'll be from noon to four here at the uh, ministry center, and the entire church family is invited and encouraged to encourage Beth in her graduation and to celebrate that with her uh, uh, Saturday afternoon. Next Sunday, after this hour at noon, we will have lunch here in the building. Uh, It's a fundraiser for our senior high uh, summer camp that's uh, coming up in July. So they've been trying to raise funds a number of ways, and one of those ways, we did it last year, worked out pretty well, so they're doing the same thing this year, having a lunch, dinner uh, here, $5 suggested donation uh, if you can do that, and uh, so if you'll make plans to hang around for an hour or so after uh, church, you can have lunch right here, and you can have it relatively inexpensively, and it'll benefit our, uh, our teens. Family camp. Family camp is in just a couple of weeks. And tomorrow is the deadline for you to reserve a, a cabin with the uh, other cabins in our group. Uh, tomorrow, if uh, there are any cabins left over, they're going to release those. So if you don't get one by tomorrow, then you're just taking your chances as to whether or not you'll, uh, if you do it later, whether or not you'll be with, with our group. So if you're thinking about going, uh, call them today, call them tomorrow to get that uh, reserved. That's one 800 double j Uh, for Double J Resort uh, on the west side of the state. And then longer range, into this month, we have uh, the Trenton Summer Festival. That's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Last year we had a table booth at that. We're going to do the same thing this year, and we're going to just hand out uh, uh, gifts for the kids. Last year we handed out bubbles. Uh, The bubbles went really fast. Uh, We handed out chalk last year. I don't know if we're doing the chalk. Are we doing the chalk this year? The chalk was a, a big hit. It scared me a little bit. It was those big, fat pieces of chalk that were given out in like a bundle of two or three. And I went by the second day of the thing, and I had to walk a long way from where I parked to where our booth was. And as I'm walking along the street, there are people, there are kids laying in the street having chalk outline made. There's chalk all over the street. And I'm thinking the festival officials are going to come after this crazy church for... uh, but, of course, it washes off, and everybody was having a great time with it, so nobody said anything, so we'll go at it again. But we're going to give that out, and attached to that is some information about the church, church name, our website, and uh, we're going to advertise our two weeks later grand opening uh, for that. Now, I'm telling you all of this, one, to pray that that will all go well, but also because we need people in shifts of two hours, I think, to man the booth. A number of you signed up for that back when we had our servant seminars back in March, so we still have your name, and we'll contact you about your slot for that. But if that's something you'd be willing to consider on one or more of those three days, taking a a two-hour slot, then uh, go to the information center, that's the desk that's out in the lobby, and let them know, and they'll put your name down. And if you know the slot you want, tell them that, and they'll put you down for that, okay? And then there is the grand opening itself. That is July 12 and 13. That's a Saturday and uh, really Saturday is the the grand opening. And that includes a window between 1 and 5 
uh, where we're having an open house for the community to come in and have tours of the building, meet uh, some of our teachers in the rooms at, at which they teach. We'll have some stuff going out on the going on on the grounds uh, for that to give it a festive atmosphere. Uh, so that will happen then. We'll need uh, some help for that too. So if you are willing to just say, I'll make myself available to help in whatever capacity I can and that you need, again, give your name at the uh, information desk about that. But pray about that, that we'll be able to get a number of folks from the community to come, get acquainted with us, and through that perhaps some will come to the Lord through that uh, as well. Uh, we're going to give uh, the tours of the building because it turns out this building having been an elementary school for a number of years, holds uh, a sentimental uh, spot in the hearts of a lot of folks in this, in this community. I found that out just talking to people. So I will not be surprised if a number of them take us up on that and want to see what we've, we've done with the building. Uh, as an example, just yesterday, uh, Ed Martin and I were talking to one of our neighbors, the neighbor on the very end on the southeast corner of our property, who's part of his yard, it's really not his yard, it's beyond his sidewalk, but right by his house, got all dug up for us to connect a pipe. And I've been feeling horrible for that poor guy, and I'm thinking, he's hating on us, probably. So Ed and I went over, knocked on the door, introduced ourselves, and uh, this guy said, ah, so you're the people I'm mad at. (laughs) And I said, well, that's why we're here, and uh, we're planning on sodding that for you. And he was very grateful for that. And then he asked us what all was happening on the back there. He had some wrong ideas about where the parking was going to be. He thought it was going to be right up against his fence and all, and all of that. So we were able to explain to him that there's a nice buffer for all of that. And he came away very satisfied with it. But he told me that he walks his dog around here and he presses his uh, face up against the glass to see what's going on uh, in here. So he's very interested, the other folks are, and we want to give them an opportunity to let them know we're open for business, as it were, and to let them see the, see the building. So that'll be part of our grand opening on Saturday the 12th, and then on Sunday the 13th, we're inviting people that come to that, of course, to come the following day, to, uh, to come to church, and then my message that day is going to be uh, titled, Introducing Community Bible Church, and I'm going to... Uh, tell folks the, uh, some of the values that define what our church is about uh, and show that those values come from Scripture so that people have a good idea who we are and can make a decision about whether or not they want to come. Okay? And then longer range is Vacation Bible School. Uh, we had the informational meeting for that during uh, Cafe Community. If you missed that informational meeting uh, and you're interested in possibly volunteering for that, give your name at the Information Center. But that will be uh, Sunday night, August the 10th. Sunday night, August the 10th through Thursday the 14th. So those five nights beginning August the 10th here for Vacation Bible School. All right. We have, for the last several weeks, been looking at church philosophy. And as I've explained, church philosophy means wisdom applied to church life because the word philosophy means love of wisdom. So when you talk about philosophy of ministry or, uh, or church philosophy, that's what you're talking about, wisdom applied to uh, the life of the church. And in that, I made the point several weeks ago that as you try to apply wisdom to the life of the church, one of the foundational things you need to bear in mind is, we all do, is that the church in the Bible means a set-apart people. The very word church means called out ones. And so the church is separate from the world by its very definition, and it's to be separate from the world also in the way it goes about its, its work. Well, that in turn affects 
what you do and how you do it. And I have made the point for these last several weeks, we are not interested, therefore, in simply gathering a crowd, but we're trying to form a congregation, a congregation of people who belong to the Lord. And those people are different than those who don't. They're not better. They're just better off. (laughs) They're forgiven, but they're still sinners, but still different because they march to the beat of a different drummer. They owe their allegiance. We owe our allegiance to Christ as Lord and and Master. And so it affects the way we live our lives, it should, individually, and then corporately as as a church. And when the church gathers, these called out people for worship, like we did in the prior hour, it is an activity that can only be engaged in by Christian people. Unbelievers, those still in the world, cannot worship. They're welcome to come and watch people who worship, but they actually can't worship. And you can only come to God, according to Scripture, through a relationship uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and he must be your mediator between you and God. And if you don't have him, you can't worship God. And here's what that means. Don't design your church and your worship for people who can't do it. And that's what our churches are doing. They're designing worship for people who can't do it. And it's transforming then our churches in a bad way. So we, we laid that out, and hopefully you have a better idea then as to why we do things as weird as we do them here. Because church people are supposed to be a bit weird. You're supposed to be set apart, right? Uh, so, uh, different from the world. But that raises the question then, well, how can I relate then? If indeed Christians are called out of the world and to God, and if the church is a set-apart people, and yet God has given us the Great Commission, how is it that I'm supposed to relate, which I am supposed to do? And I've suggested there are three major categories that you can do that in. Common grace, even though those in the world do not give their allegiance to to Christ as yet, prior to salvation, they uh, still are not as bad as they could be. Thank the Lord, because if every unbeliever was as bad as he or she could be, the planet would be unlivable. But in God's common grace, he restrains the effects of evil, and and even unbelievers live off of the stolen capital of the biblical worldview. That is, they do things like get married. But see, marriage is like our thing. Marriage belongs to the true and living God. He gave it. But unbelievers still get married. Go figure. But that's because they're living off of the stolen capital of the biblical biblical worldview. They don't don't know that. They just get married because their parents got married and because their friends were getting married. But we can tell them why there is such a thing as marriage and what it's actually supposed to be about. And in those common grace categories of things like marriage and parenting and work and all of those things, all stuff that God is the one who gave, we then can relate to people Because of that commonality, common grace, we can also relate to them because of our common struggles. They sin, we sin. They get sick, contract disease, we we do. They have financial problems, we do. So there are common struggles living in a fallen world. And so we can relate to them that way and then show what God says about those things. And then we can relate to them by being merciful people. And having mercy ministries that we carry out in order to help people who are in difficulties of, of whatever type. 
So that's how the church as a whole, how we can relate to uh, those that are outside the church. But how can you and how can I individually and personally present the gospel when we're in our neighborhoods, when we're at work, when we're talking with family? And last week I made the point that in Scripture, evangelism, that is giving the gospel, is not a one-size-fits-all proposition. That if you look at Jesus and his evangelization, it was, it was never the same approach. His approach varied depending on who he was talking to and the particular emphasis of the gospel that they needed. This is why classes on a technique for evangelism, though they can be helpful, they can leave something to be desired. Namely, you look like a slick salesman when you do it. And you're trying to impose this technique on somebody who may not be on the same wavelength you're on. So rather than doing that, you should, I recommend, do what I think Jesus was doing. He was looking at where the person was and what was the particular emphasis they needed. And we saw that then in the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. And the rich young ruler needed to see that he was not as good as he thought he was. And Jesus emphasized that and showed that to him. And yet, he took a different approach in John chapter 4. You have a woman who had had five husbands and was living with a guy who was not her husband. And Jesus says to her, you're trying to satisfy your, your desires through a man. You've been doing that for your entire life. And your desires can only be satisfied through the living water that I give you. So he tailored his approach depending on who it, who it was. And you've got two major categories of people, two major categories. You've got the religious types on the one extreme, and you've got the irreligious types on the other, and then everything in between. And the religious types need to be shown that their view of God's holiness is inadequate. And that was what the rich young ruler was. He was a guy who kept all the commandments he thought, but his view of God's holiness was inadequate because Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, go do this. And he thought, well, if I keep them well enough, and He was convinced he had kept them well enough, and Jesus was saying, no, you haven't, because the standard is not you. The standard is God, and God is completely holy. And that's why there's no one good except God. And since you're not good, God, you're not good. So the religious types need to be shown that their standard of holiness is inadequate, and the irreligious types need to be shown that there is grace that is infinitely greater than their sin. People who have lived a wanton, sinful lifestyle need to be shown that There is no sin or sins that they have committed that put them outside the bounds of God's grace and the hope that it it gives. So Jesus took these different approaches. Two categories of sin, religious types uh, of sinners, religious and irreligious sinners. Today, I want us to, and maybe beyond today, look at uh, not categories of sinners, but personalities of sinners. There's categories of sinners, the religious types and the irreligious types. But then there are different personalities of sin. Now, what do I mean by that? When we talk about someone's personality, we're talking about the manifestations of their personhood. Stay with me. So a person is such, has personality, has personhood because they are able to do three things. They're able to think, they're able to act, and they're able to feel. God is able to do all three of those. That's why God is a personal God. God is not a force. 
God is not just this abstract thing that is out there. God is a person. God has the qualities of personhood because God thinks and acts and feels. And he made us in his image, and that image means a couple of things. One, that we have a moral resemblance to God, that we are to think and, and, uh, think and act and speak as God would think and act and speak. So a moral reflection back to God, but also a personal reflection back to God. We are the only beings that he made that have these qualities of, of intentional thinking and, uh, and, and doing and feeling. So God made us in his image, and part of that is we are persons like God is a person. That's why we speak of the three persons of the triune God. Uh, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, each of them thinks and acts and, and feels. So when I talk about personality of sinners, here's what I'm talking about. Everybody's born a sinner, everybody sins, but the manifestation of that sin is different depending on the emphasis of your personality. Thinking, doing, feeling. Now think about that for a minute. Isn't it true that some people's primary sin is thinking sin? Intellectual sin? And other people's primary sin is volitional sin. Stuff they do in their acts, in their behavior. And still other people's primary sin is emotional sin. They make themselves emotionally dependent on someone other than, than God. And without this other person, they are completely lost. So they become, we call it codependency, all that, right? So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about the personalities of sin then. Personhood means that we think and we act and we feel. And depending on the person, the emphasis of their sin will manifest itself in one of those ways. It's not that they don't sin in the other ways, but the dominant thing is one of those ways. So you've got the intellectual types. Their dominant sin, the dominant manifestation of their sin is in the way they think. It's intellectual sin. Now, did you know there is such a thing? You can think sinfully, not just when you're not just when you're thinking hateful thoughts, obviously that's sinful. Not just when you're thinking impure thoughts, obviously that's sinful. But when you're thinking incorrect thoughts about God, those are sinful thoughts. You're probably sitting there thinking, well, can a person help it? I mean, what if they just don't know? What if they just don't really know about God and so they're thinking about God, but they're thinking incorrectly about God. And so you, you got somebody out in Africa, let's say, who's you know, trying to think about God and, and the great other that is out there, and they're doing the best they can with it. Is that good enough? What, is, what does God say about that? Is there such a thing as thinking sinful, incorrect thoughts about God? And the answer to that is definitely yes according to Scripture. And so what I'd like to do is start by dealing with people whose, whose primary manifestation of their sin comes through intellectual sin. And if you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 1. So this is what we mean when we talk about 
total depravity. Many of you have heard that phrase before, the doctrine of total depravity. But here's what total depravity means, though. Depravity means sinfulness, so you could just say total sinfulness. But why is it called total? Well, as I said earlier, because of God's common grace, it doesn't mean that every sinful person does every sinful thing he or she could. Thanks be to God. (laughs) Because if every sinful person did every possible sinful thing they could do, look out. So it doesn't mean that. God's common grace restrains, restrains that. What does it mean when we say total sinfulness or total depravity then? It means this. Every part of the person is affected by sin. And the person has these three parts, mind, will, and emotion. When we say total depravity, we mean that our, the way we think, the way we act, and the way we feel are all affected by sin. That's what we mean by total depravity. The whole person is affected by this. And what I'm telling you here then is that being the case, different personality types reflect that sinfulness differently. And some do it mostly intellectually, some do it mostly volitionally, and some do it mostly emotionally. And so in Romans chapter 1, Paul who wrote it is dealing with a couple of those Uh, at least. Intellectual and volitional, I want to focus, uh, first of all, on the intellectual sin. And this is what he says beginning in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, what what is this wickedness? Well, the wickedness he's going to describe in the verses that follow, all the way down to to verse 32. And some of that wickedness is going to involve behavior, stuff people do. It's going to include homosexuality, for example. People having unnatural affection is what he calls it. So it's going to include behavioral sin, but it begins with intellectual sin. And it's called, both of them are called wickedness. So God's wrath abides upon people who are both intellectually sinful and because intellectually sinful, then also behaviorally sinful as well. And they're both called wickedness. And notice what gives rise to them. At the end of verse 18, here's what they do. They suppress the truth. So I asked earlier, maybe you're thinking, well, what's a guy to do? He's just trying to, you know... He's just trying to grope his way to God, feel his way to God. He's kind of blind out there. And he he may want to know God, but he doesn't know what God is like. And so he has a false conception of God and therefore thinks false notions about God. What's he to do? And this verse says, no, people, sinful people, notice that phrase, suppress the truth. Now, I'm going to prove this in a moment, but let me just make the statement now. You can't suppress what you don't have. The reason they're able to hold it down and suppress it is is precisely because they have it. So it's not that people don't have any conception of God, don't know God. It's that they suppress what they do know about God. 
That's the first point that Paul's making now in verse 18, and it goes on, so let me prove it in verse 19. Here's why the wrath of God is against the wickedness of men that includes this intellectual sin of suppressing the truth. Verse 19, since, because, what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. The reason that they suppress the truth is because they have the truth. But they don't, as we'll see, don't like the truth. And so therefore they hold it down. So Paul tells us three things about all people here. The first one is this. All people know God. All people know God. And how do we know all people know God? Because he says what may be known about God is plain to them. He has made it plain to them. Here's how, verse 20. For because since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. So, God has made it plain by virtue of creation that that he is. He has made it plain by virtue of creation that he is outside of creation. He has this eternal power. He is eternal. He's not part of creation. He's outside of creation. God's made that plain to every person who comes into the world. But they reject that truth. If you reject just this elementary truth of just being a creature made in the image of the creator, there is no hope for you in terms of further revelation from God. And so having rejected that now, people, he'll go on to say, they create for themselves gods to worship, made like creatures, and they worship the creature more than the creator who is forever to be praised. He says in verse 25. So there is this intellectual sin, and the fact is that all men know God now. How do they know God? God's made a plane and what's been made. And God made us to know him. In the very first moment of mankind's existence, moment one, we knew God. The moment that Adam was created and was conscious, he knew God. In Genesis chapter 1, when, when God speaks to Adam Adam knows the voice of his creator because he was made to know his voice. Have you ever thought about that? How did Adam know who this guy was? Here's how. He he was made to know. He was made to know his voice. He knew it immediately. He responded immediately. And people made in the image of God were like Adam, all of us, made to know the voice of our creator. So we all know God, but here's the second thing this passage teaches us. We all know God, but sinful people do not want to know God. So they're made to know God and to know the voice of their creator, but they don't want that voice and they don't want that creator because of sin. So the truth that they have, instead of receiving and accepting and appropriating, they hold down and suppress. And this voice of God, that they were made to know, 
still rings in their ears. And they don't like it. So this is why when you go to work tomorrow, you're told there are two things we don't talk about. Religion and politics. When you go to work tomorrow and you say to your coworker, hey, how was your weekend? Your coworker will have no problem telling you all the intimate details of everything he or she did. Stuff you don't want to know. And if you say, you know, I was at worship yesterday and we had a great time worshiping our God and learning of him, they'll go, whoa, whoa, whoa. We can talk about who I slept with and got sloshed with, but we can't talk about our creator. That's off limits. Why? Because all men know God, but they don't want to know God. And that voice that they were made, created to hear and know, they block out. You talk scripture, you talk God, I don't want to hear it. Suppress the truth because they know God but don't want to know God. And so uh, the passage tells us, look at verse 28. Verse 28, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. That's a fancy way of saying what I've just been saying to you. They don't want to think about God. They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. So I don't want to think about God. And I have rejected the voice of God, but I know that voice. And so as soon as I hear it, I go, don't talk about that. That's what the natural man, the sinful man does post-fall, post-sin. So then there is intellectual sin. Failure to think about God the way we were made to think about God because we suppress the truth about God. And how does it manifest itself? What does it look like? People make up conceptions about God. I mean, just make stuff up. Uh, Listen, uh, we will again in the near future do our Discovering God series called Big Bang or Big God. So if you're curious as to what the Bible teaches about Creation versus evolution. We've got a series for that, okay? But for now, just get this. Um, The Bible teaches the Big Bang. It teaches that uh, God spoke and bang, there's the world, okay? That's your Big Bang, right? And frankly, evolution is absurd. And it is scientifically absurd. But people not only believe it, you got to believe it too. And there cannot be dissenting voices to this. I mean, we're tolerant except for people we're not tolerant of. I know this firsthand. I mean, I'm going back over 30 years ago, sitting in college and raising my hand saying, you know, that's a theory and not a, good, and not a very good one at that. Well, look out. I'm going to embarrass Lainey with this, but Lainey just completed her first year of college. And her second semester, she went to Schoolcraft. She's going to go back again. It's a good school. But it's a, it's, a, it's a school in which 
the Christian worldview is not taught. And so in her anthropology class, the class, the entire class is asked to stand up and say, how many are you in favor of gay marriage? Stand on one side of the room. And if you're not, stand on the other side of the room. And there is one gal on that one side of the room. Now, why, do you, why does a professor do that? Other than to ridicule and embarrass. It's okay. I've told Laney. Tell him bring it on. Okay? Stand up for Christ. Stand up for truth. But my point to you is, that's the way it is out there. So we know God, but we don't want to know God, and we will make stuff up, and we will embarrass you if you don't go along with the, if you don't go along with the crowd. Now, God's response to all of this is given in three passages here. Notice uh, verse 26. Two passages. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. And then he describes the behavior now that flows from this. But notice that phrase, God gave them over. And then you look at verse 28, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over. So God is now giving people, is saying that God removes the restraints of his common grace so that the depravity, the sinfulness that people want to pursue because they don't want the voice of the Creator. That's what sin causes them to do. Hold it down. Suppress it. They now pursue, and when God lets them go, gives them over. Yikes. We're beginning to see the effects of that in America. Now, forget beginning. We're continuing to see the effects of that in America. The lifting of God's restraint, common grace restraint, so that everybody does that which is right in his own eyes. The 60s come home to roost. Do your own thing, self-expression, free love, and we've got it. And we're continuing to get it. But Romans 1 talks about it. God giving them over. So all people know God. But all people do not want to know God. And then thirdly, this passage teaches that it renders all men as fools. Fools. Verse 23. Excuse me, verse 22. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And I point out to you when we see the word fool in Scripture, doesn't mean ignorant. It means the opposite of wise. Wise means appropriating what you know, applying what you know. That's what wisdom is, the application of knowledge. Foolishness, then, is the failure to apply what you know. And people are rendered fools because they know God, but they fail to apply that. And failure to apply the knowledge of God renders them foolish, then. So we live in a foolish world. So how do you, you know, how do you show that? How do you see that foolishness? You, you reject God and look at all the stuff that goes with it. You reject God and what happens to marriage? 
You reject God and what happens to parenting? You, you reject God and what happens to human life? You reject God and what happens to purpose and meaning in life? What am I here for then? And how long am I here for? You reject God and the answer to that is as long as you get to live, that's it. So what's the logical conclusion to that, friends? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's a perfectly logical conclusion. Now I'm going to say something here. I've got to be careful. But our young people are harming themselves, even killing themselves. But they are harming themselves and killing themselves as a very logical conclusion to what they have been taught about who they are. The reason I said I have to be careful, obviously, obviously, I'm not recommending that. It's a horrible thing. But what we are seeing in our young people is the logical extension of the intellectual sin of our culture. So you will encounter people then who have a particular personality for their sin. And the first type of personality type of that sin is, is intellectual sin. And what does Paul say about it in Romans 1? Well, look at the end of verse, uh, verse 21. So what's the conclusion of all of this and the sin that people pursue intellectually? Excuse me, the end of verse 20. The conclusion of this is, so that men are without excuse. I, God, made you. I, God, created you to know me. Therefore, you do know me. Therefore, you know me by what has been made. Romans chapter 2 says, verses 14 and 15, he's given all men a conscience as well. Therefore, he know, they know there's a God, right and wrong, because of that too. So I've made you to know me, but you have rejected me. You know me, but you don't want to know me. Therefore, you are rendered foolish, and you are without excuse. And that phrase at the end of verse 20 that says, so they are without excuse, is this. When it says without excuse, some of you know the Greek word apologia. Uh, We get apologetics from it. Apologetics is a discipline. That means defense of the faith. So if you get an apologetics book, it's a book about how to defend the Christian faith. If you take an apologetics course at a Bible college or seminary, it's on that, how to defend the faith. That's what apologetics is. It comes from that Greek word apologia. Here's why I bring it up. The end of verse 20, when it says without excuse, it's the negative form of apologia. When it says without excuse, it's literally without a defense. People who reject God, which is all people by nature are rendered defenseless without an excuse. And so the consequences of that in our final moments are manifold. I've mentioned some of them. But the foolishness that this creates in otherwise very smart people uh, is amazing. You ask then a person who rejects God. And you ask them a question about now behavior. 
Okay, you think that way. How does that affect now your behavior? How should that affect our behavior? You ask them a question like, so is murder wrong? Well, yeah. Let's suppose they say yeah. Well, why is it wrong? This is a smart person you're talking with, remember? This is your professor at college you're talking with. So why is murder wrong, prof? And he can, he can, he'll have to make something up, won't he? I mean, is there some transcendent law? If there's something transcendent, you all of a sudden have God. So you can't have anything transcendent and eternal that you derive that thing from. So it's going to have to be here and now conventional somehow. We got enough people together that voted to have a law that says murder's wrong. That's why. Well, cool. I'm going to spend my life on a campaign to try to get enough people to vote to change that law. In particular, I want to get enough people to vote to say murder is wrong except if it's a cocky college professor. (laughs) Now, Laney, don't say that to your college professor, all right? (laughs) You say, really? I mean, is is it that foolish? It's that foolish. I'll conclude with this final illustration. Some of you know the name Alan Dershowitz. Uh, high-powered lawyer, was part of the OJ Dream Team, all that. Very, you know, Harvard professor. Smart guy. I saw a debate between uh, Alan Dershowitz and Alan Keyes. You all know who Alan Keyes is? Alan Keyes is a uh, pro-life, conservative, African-American candidate professor for president a few years ago, but he was debating Dershowitz. And the debate was, what is the basis for morality? Dershowitz is an atheist. So I watched this debate with great interest because my understanding is that Dershowitz at some point is going to have to concede that he really doesn't have an absolute basis for this morality. And Alan Keyes was very adroit at making him concede that. And he did so by asking Alan Dershowitz, why was the Holocaust wrong? Now, mind you, Alan Dershowitz is Jewish. And he had family who, de- who perished in the, in the Holocaust. So here's a brilliant man who had family who died in the Holocaust, and he's being asked, why was the Holocaust wrong? And he The best he could come up with was, and this is a quote, Western conventions of morality. In the West, our conventions of morality are, you can't do that. So what if the conventions are different? Is it okay then? And Alan Dershowitz has no answer. Now there's a brilliant man who has been rendered a fool. And he's been rendered a fool because of his intellectual sin. And when you witness to people, you will be witnessing to people of different personality types who manifest their sin in different ways. Some of them will be intellectual. And it will be good for you to just have a handful of things to point out to them that they really can't live with the consequences of their own worldview sin. They have to live off the borrowed capital, and I prefer stolen capital, of the biblical worldview. Alan Dershowitz gets to live in relative safety because he lives in a world that has been made by God and been made with certain moral laws. 
and yet he rejects that God and therefore those moral laws. But he benefits from them. Do you see that? I really am going to shut up. But the Bible teaches that there is a day coming when God will remove all the restraints that he has in place. The Bible calls that, Jesus called it, a time of trouble such as has not been seen on earth. It's called the Great Tribulation, a time of trial on the earth. I believe all Christians will be removed before that time. I want to be removed before that time. Because that time will be hell on earth. And do you know why it will be hell on earth? Because people who have rejected God will now be freed to do as they please. Look out. So in our witness... Think about the personality type you're dealing with. Intellectual sin, then expose that. Lovingly, don't say you want to pass a law to kill college professors or any of that. Lovingly. But then next week I want to continue looking at volitional and emotional sin. And you'll be dealing with people in both of those, all three of those categories, and you want to try to emphasize the particular point of sin and then point them to the solution for that sin, Jesus and the gospel. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time to think about these matters and how we can relate to those who are as yet outside of your family. Help us, Lord, to train ourselves to be effective evangelists, effective witnesses for you. Help us to do that by pondering the truths of your word and then seeking to wisely make application of that knowledge to our world and the times that you have placed us in. Lord, we live in a time of great foolishness. Rejection of you and of the light of your word is causing great heartache, behavioral heartache, emotional heartache. But it begins with intellectual sin. Help us to be very keen to that. Help us to be people who, in obedience to your word, seek to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Having then had our own thoughts taken captive to the obedience of Christ, help us to become adept that's speaking with those who are outside of you and who foolishly misappropriate and suppress and hold down the knowledge of yourself that you have given. May you be pleased to use that witness. May your spirit move upon the hearts you bring us, of those you bring us in contact with to draw them to yourself. Help us to practice this this week, tomorrow, at work, in our neighborhoods, with our families. We ask you to grant us safety this week and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.